Well, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started here. I trust you all have had a good week, and it's good to be back with you this morning. In the last couple of weeks, we've um, been looking at Hebrews, and we've been in chapter 2. So if you want to turn there again this morning. So in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this warning at the beginning of Hebrews 2 to pay attention to what we've heard. And we've spent most of our time kind of looking at the why behind that statement. Why is it that we should pay attention? And to look at that, we've spent a lot of time in chapter 1 looking at the various ways in which the author describes Christ and in his various roles. So we looked at him as the better prophet, as the better priest. We looked at him as superior to the angels and ultimately as God's final revelation to us. So today and in the next week, I'd like us to look at the object of our attention or what are we supposed to be looking at. At? What are we paying attention to? And in answering that question, there's an objection that might come up from our first couple weeks that I'd like to answer as well. Because all through chapter 1, we're encountering statements of the authority of Christ and of Christ ruling presently, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling with him. But the objection is this. We can read that in Hebrews 1. We can read about what Scripture says about Christ reigning. But as we look around us in the world today, and we look around at what's happening, it doesn't look like Christ is reigning in much of what we can see. And so if we're supposed to pay attention to what Christ says because he's ruling, but we don't actually see him ruling then why should we pay attention to a rule that we can't see? So, I'd like us to begin today in verse 5. And we'll read verses 5 through 9 as we get started here. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death. For everyone. 
Well, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray again this morning that as we consider your word and seek to understand what you've said to us, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of humility to hear what you have to say to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are three things I'd like us to consider from this passage this morning. I'd like us to consider the past history of mankind and the present condition of mankind and finally the future hope of mankind. So to begin with the first of these, the past history of man, I want us to turn over in our Bibles to Psalm 8. Now, we read a fairly lengthy quotation in our passage this morning, and that quotation comes from Psalm 8. So I think it would be helpful to turn there. And it's a fairly short psalm. So we'll go ahead and read the whole thing. So Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man, that you care for him. You have made him a little while lower than the angels. Sorry, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now we won't spend too much time with this psalm, but I want to point out just a few key ideas from this that I think will help us when we go back to Hebrews. So as we read through this psalm, one of the things that captures our attention at first is that it begins and it ends in the same way with this phrase, how majestic is your name in all the earth? So very somewhat self-evidently, one of the main themes in this psalm is the majesty of God's name. And this psalm has a certain structure to it. So it starts with the name of God, how majestic is your name in all the earth? talks about him setting his glory above the heavens, established strength because of his foes. We have verse 3, we, when I look at your heaven is the work of your fingers. So we have the name of God, we have the creation of God, and then in the middle of the psalm, it turns to man. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And then again, back down in verse 7, we come back to creation again, and at the end of the psalm, back to God's name. 
So book ended with the majesty of the name of God, with his, with his creation in there as well. Man is the center of the psalm. Now, when we think of God's name and his majesty, and we think of our present day, and we think of man, those things don't always go together. Man is often setting himself in opposition to God's authority. He's setting himself up in opposition to the majesty of God's name, and he is trying to build a name for himself. And so you have this this conflict going on between man seeking his own glory and God and his glory. So why is it in this psalm, set to talk directly about the majesty of God, that man would be given such a high place in it. And there's pretty significant things said about man, that he, God has crowned man with glory and honor. Now in verse 6, when we read that God has given man dominion over the work of, of his hands, and that God has put all things under his feet, and it goes on to list animals, You know, it takes our mind back to Genesis 1, right? When God first creates man. And the first command that God gives to his newly created creatures is this. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in the beginning, when God first creates the earth, one of the first things he does is he puts man in the world that he has created and has given him a role of dominion in that earth. Another thing we learn about man in the beginning of Genesis is that he is made in the image of God. Now that concept of man being made in the image of God, there's been a lot of Um, speculation as far as what exactly in man is the image of God. Uh, And there's a lot of of theological debate around that idea. And our goal is not to get into that this morning. But simply to point out one thing, in the ancient kind of Near Eastern context where Israel would have been situated, it was a, a not uncommon practice for a king who would be ruling over a significant portion of land, in order to assert his authority or his dominion in that land, he would set up images of himself in different places in the land that, in a sense, signified, I am king here, and I am king here. And so I think that's helpful in a sense when we understand man being made in God's image and then God telling him, be fruitful and multiply and go and fill the earth. God creates man, in a sense, to be the, um, the picture of his authority on earth and to rule that earth. And so the dominion and the authority that man has is not inherent to man, but in a sense is inherited by man. God gives it to him, not so that man in and of himself is some strong and authoritative being, but man has been given a divine authority to have dominion over the earth. And so in a sense, we can see then why the glory and honor and majesty of man works together perfectly with the majesty of the name of God. 
because ultimately it is in, in how God created the world, man was part of how God was receiving glory to his name. And what man was doing on earth was testifying to the majesty of God. In a sense, the majesty of the name of God was tied together with the majesty that he had given to his creature, man. Now back in Hebrews 2, as we look at this past history of man, right? And we see man as created to give glory to God, created to testify to his majesty. Then we read this. After, that, after Psalm 8 is quoted, we come into the second half of verse 8 where we read, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That is, God left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, in this verse, once we get down to verse 9 and we start looking at Christ, we can look back up at the verses before it and look at what this psalm is saying about mankind in general and see specifically how that ultimately is talking about Christ. And the same here with verse 8. But since the author has just quoted the psalm, he has not mentioned Jesus yet. But he still says this, in putting everything in subjection to him, which textually that has to be referring to man, in verse 6, in putting everything in subjection to him, God left nothing outside of man's control. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So we have this question. God creates the world in a submission, in a sense, to man. And he creates mankind as dominating all of that creation. But today, when we look around the earth, mankind does not have the same role over creation that he did at the beginning of creation. When God first created the world... Humans were not killed by animals. They didn't go swimming and get bitten by sharks and have limbs torn off. They were, not, they were not subject to natural disasters, things that are relating to the earth and the goings-on of the physical world. Man was not subject to those things. The earth was subject to him. So how is it now that we don't see everything in subjection to man? Well, we know from Genesis that God creates man with authority, with dominion, but what happens in the fall? Again, man's authority is not his own, right? Man's authority is God's authority that God has given to man for a specific purpose. But in the fall, Satan comes and tempts them to reject the one who has given them their authority to reject all of creation is subject to them, right? But they are subject to God. But Satan comes and tempts them to reject God's authority and to, in a sense, set up their own authority. And ultimately, 
to give in to Satan's authority. It's not even their own authority. That's the lie. And so man gives into temptation and sins, and in so doing, loses that same position of dominion. Not entirely. Again, we talk about man being made in the image of God, and when man fell, that image is corrupted. It's not completely erased, but nor is it as unaltered as it was before the fall. And in the same way, his role as having dominion over the earth, though that role is not completely taken away, yet it is not fulfilled in the way that it's supposed to be. Man no longer is on earth actively testifying to the majesty of the name of God. Instead, mankind now has become subjected to Satan, whom Paul would write is the God of this world, blinding the minds of unbelievers. And we see this. As we look around and we see wars, we see conflict, we see moral chaos. What are all these things coming from? Ultimately, these things are coming from forces higher than humanity. Scripture speaks of spiritual forces that are evil that have a certain amount of influence today in our world. So no longer is the earth in subjection to man, though that is how God originally created it. Now, in large part, the authority, the dominion of the world has been given over to darkness for a time. So I want us to consider now not simply the past and how we're created, not simply where we are today, but I want us to consider a future hope of man. And this is where I hope we can spend most of our time. So to consider the future hope, let's go ahead and read verse 9 one more time. We'll begin actually with that last sentence in verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, before we jump into this, I want to tie this back into the last couple weeks really quickly. We've been looking at this phrase, you know, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And what we're going to look at in these verses now, in a sense, is a description of that great salvation. But before we look at that, I want to point out one thing with the word neglect. The word neglect kind of presupposes that you have something it presupposes something that is in your possession. So Paul writes to Timothy, do not neglect the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of hands. Now in writing that, it presupposes then that Timothy actually has received a gift through the laying on of hands. If he hasn't, then he has nothing to neglect. So in a similar way, when we're exhorted as believers not to neglect such a great salvation, 
then it implies that this is being written to people who actually have received that salvation. And so inasmuch as there is a warning in that text, there's a great encouragement as well. Because everything now that we're about to read in the rest of chapter 2, these are all things that for those who truly are believers, who are truly the people of God, this is their possession. This is something that they have. Which gives us, just in passing, another reason not to, ne- not to neglect it. Not only because of where it's from, but because this is something that we actually have. And it's something that's in our possession. We truly should give much attention to it and much heed to it. Anyway, as we think of verse 9, I want us to consider something. If these are realities that are ours currently, then though we're speaking of a future hope of man, that can be somewhat misleading because this future hope is actually based on something that's a reality today, that's a reality in the present. So what do we see about Christ here in verse 9? What is the reality? We see here that the author now is applying this quotation from Psalms that we've looked at in terms of all of humanity. Now he's applying that specifically to Christ. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, in order to help us with this passage, I want us to turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll spend a little bit of time here. Um, There's some very parallel thoughts in this text that I think will help us in Hebrews 2. So in 1 Corinthians 15, in the first 19 verses or so, Paul is, actually in the whole chapter really, Paul is defending this idea of the resurrection. And he does so in a couple of ways. He, he defends, in one sense, the idea of resurrection in general, not merely the resurrection of Christ, but is it even possible for the dead to be raised? Is there a resurrection of the dead? But he seeks to go about Um, explaining the resurrection of Christ from two angles. He goes through it from kind of a historical angle, looking at the appearances that Christ uh, performed after his resurrection, appearing to different apostles and to groups of disciples. And then he also presents a theological argument for the resurrection, why the resurrection of Christ is necessary for the Christian faith. So in verse 19, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. He says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. We'll end our reading there. So in this text in 1 Corinthians, I want to tie together what we have in creation and the fall with Adam to what we see in Hebrews 2 with Christ. And I want us to consider this idea, it's prevalent all through Scripture, but of Christ as the second Adam succeeding where the first Adam fails. So we have here in 1 Corinthians Verse 22, actually verse 21, that by a man came death, and by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. And then in verse 22, it kind of explains that. The man through whom death came was Adam, and the man through whom resurrection comes is Christ. And so in the fall there, when Adam rejects the authority of God and chooses unknowingly, in a sense, to put himself underneath the authority of the devil, the consequence of that action is death. And so you have these two ideas kind of in conflict with each other, the idea of dominion and the idea of death. Originally, man dominates over creation. Now, man is dominated by this entity called death, and ultimately by one who has death in his power. So after the fall now, this text says that in Adam all die. So all of mankind, in a sense, represented by Adam, when he sins, all of mankind sins in him. And since death is the penalty for that sin, now all mankind must share that penalty. And so all mankind dies in Adam. But then we have this phrase, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And this is not the point of what we're saying, but just to clarify this a little bit. When we read all die in Adam, that's speaking kind of of all of every single human being from the beginning of time until now. All humanity has died in Adam. The parallel statement says, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So while we're at this text, I think it's, it's helpful just to make the point. Is this saying that everyone who died in Adam, all of mankind, all those people are now going to be saved in Christ, in his resurrection? So all of mankind dies in Adam, all of mankind will be made alive in Christ. Well, I think if we go to verse 23, Paul clarifies for us who it is, who is the all that is made alive in Christ. We read this, but each in his own order in regards to resurrection. Christ to the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So those who are made alive together with Christ are those who belong to Christ. So it's, it's not super pertinent to what we're talking about today, but I think it's a, a key point to make that it is only those who belong to Christ who are raised with Christ. 
But moving on from that. One of the things that we see here in verse 23 is there's a certain order of things. Christ, as in the same way that Adam was the representative for all of mankind, Christ now is the representative of his people. And what do we read about Christ? We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that he is raised from the dead. But not only that, but that he is the first fruits of, in verse 20, of those who have fallen asleep. So again, kind of combining these verses, 20, 23, there are, there's this group of people, right? This group of people who belong to Christ. And ultimately, we know from Scripture that for all mankind, death is inevitable. Death comes. But Christ, let's think about this for a minute, right? Christ came as a perfect man. And how did death enter the world? Death entered the world through sin. So if Christ comes apart from sin, then Christ is not subject to death, right? But in order for Christ to be raised, that implies that Christ first has died. And what we've learned through Scripture is that Christ has died because he took on himself all of the sins of his people and therefore bore the death that they deserved. And so when the text says, is, as, says that in Adam all die, it's not referring merely to in Adam all physically die, though that is certainly true, but in Adam all die spiritually and ultimately for eternity are eternally dying, as it were. But Christ, in taking on the sins of his people, and in dying the death that was reserved for them in a sense, and then rising again from the dead in power over death, he gives to his people now a release from that eternal dying to which they became subject through sin. But we have this reality that Christ is the one who is raised first, and then at his coming, those who belong to him will be raised again. A bodily resurrection. Then we have in verse 24 that after this takes place, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So again, when Adam gives up dominion, in a sense, dominion now goes to forces of darkness over the earth. And we see that played out in multiple places in Scripture. But Christ, the end of his work, is not merely saving his people from their sin for eternal life, but is restoring the order of creation, is restoring authority over the earth back to mankind. And so we have here in verse 24 that when the end comes, he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after he destroys every rule and every authority and every power. And it, it calls to mind 
you know, verses where Paul talks about principalities and powers and spiritual darkness, rulers over spiritual darkness. These are the things that Christ is defeating. And then we have this phrase that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, which again makes us think back Hebrews 1, right? To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But then we have this in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So again, these same two realities from Hebrews, God has put everything in subjection to Christ, and yet there are still enemies to be destroyed. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So now let's turn back to Hebrews 2. And we find some of these same ideas from 1 Corinthians reaffirmed here. But the key difference between these two is in 1 Corinthians, Paul is looking toward the future in everything he says. He says, Christ is raised the first fruits, and at his coming again, his people will be raised as well. And at that time, then he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Then he will put all his enemies under his feet. We have this great hope we're looking forward to of the reign of Christ. But as we come back to Hebrews 2, we have some of these same realities articulated, but in the present. So we have in verse 9, or verse 8 again, at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. And Paul's point in 1 Corinthians is to point out, though we don't see it, this is what's coming. But the author of Hebrews just kind of skips over that. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but what do we see? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And think of that even. All of Hebrews 1, what are we learning? That Christ is superior to angels, in his person, in his office. And what do we read here? That he is made for a little while lower than the angels. Now think of, of the first century audience, right? People who actually, you know, they know people who saw the man, Jesus, walking on earth. So if they read Hebrews 1, and read of the eternal glory of Christ, him being one with the Father, the radiance of the majesty of God, their mind almost might think, okay, but then how do we explain what we saw on earth? Because that's not what we saw. So the author of Hebrews says that what we do see is we see him, we see Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, We read in Philippians that he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death. He took on human flesh and became for a little while lower than the angels. And this is who we see. We see Jesus. And now to use the word of the psalm again, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And why? Why is he crowned with glory and honor? Look at that next phrase. Because of the suffering of death. In the psalm, when we read about Adam being created, we read of mankind being created with glory and honor. There's no mention of death. Man is created with glory and honor and is given dominion. But then Christ, Adam gives up that dominion and comes under the reign of death. But Christ comes and regains that glory and honor that was intended for humanity. And he regains it by subjecting himself to death. And what happens in the death of Christ? Look at that next phrase. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death 
for everyone. So we have here again this idea that Christ comes to regain the authority that man lost, to regain the dominion that man gave up, and he does so by putting himself underneath man's enemy, death, for a time so that he might raise again from the dead in power over that death and declare his authority as the one who ultimately has power over all things. What do we read in Hebrews 1? That God created all things by Christ and appointed him as what? Appointed Christ as the heir of all things. And then what do we read in verse 3? That after making purification for sin, Christ then sat down at the right hand of God. So we see in 1 Corinthians this future hope that someday we as believers will be raised again physically with Christ. But we read in Hebrews, though we don't see that now, what we know for certain is that Christ already in his work has risen in power over death. And jumping down a few verses in verse 14, let's read this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Again, he took on human flesh. And why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What an amazing statement, seriously. That mankind, when God creates him, is deceived by the serpent, deceived by the devil. But Christ in glory comes and takes on human flesh, humbles himself for the purpose of destroying not simply death, but the one who has the power of death. So as we read these verses, verses 6 through 8, we can see what was originally intended for mankind And we can see how, ultimately, that will be given again to mankind. But through a specific man, through the man Christ. And apart from him, none of these realities can take place. Now, I'd like next week to look a little more through the the rest of chapter 2 to look at how it is that we as believers now come to share in that reign of Christ. If Christ is reigning currently on earth, or not on earth, if Christ is reigning currently in heaven, though we don't see it on earth, what is our role as believers in that? What is our place? What's our position? But we'll tackle that next week. So in conclusion for this week, all of this that we're looking at, right, this is all part of that great salvation that we're not to neglect. If you just look at the warning, I mentioned this the first week, when you look at the exhortations in Scripture and you say, I have to do these things, and you leave it there, it can become very discouraging. But if you look past the what am I doing to the why, and not simply the fact that Christ is above angels, so we should listen to his message now, but we look at the content of this salvation. What is this great salvation that we have? Ultimately, it's the restoration of all that God intended in creation and eternal life with him, ruling with him. Now, when we're instructed not to neglect that, that instruction becomes less of a, 
a burdensome command and more of a joy. Why would we want to neglect that? Through the old message, disobedience brought condemnation. And if we neglect this message, we're under that same condemnation. But look at the message. Look at what we have. Christ has taken on himself humanity. And why? That he might take on himself all our wrongdoings, all the transgression and disobedience that received condemnation under the old. He might take on himself all of those things. Why? That he might bear the penalty that was intended for us. That he might rise again in power, in triumph over death and raise us together with him. That's an amazing reality. Isn't doctrine practical? (laughs) You know? So how do we persevere? To to bring this back to our, our theme. When we look around at our world and we see evil, we see sin, we see disaster, we see tragedy. And often we don't just see that looking around the world. We, look, we see that in our own lives. When we see those things, what is it that keeps us from leaving? What is it that keeps us from encountering the trials of life, from encountering themes that seem contrary to what we see in Scripture? This doesn't seem like Christ reigning. What keeps us then from walking away from that? Ultimately, it is the reality that God is reigning. So what do we do with that? We pay attention to it. We think on it. We look to the one who has the authority. We look to the one who has power over death. And in looking to him, we're preserved by him. So how is it that our works, as it were, for perseverance mix with God's work in preserving us? Our perseverance is merely remembering what God has done and what God is doing and what God has promised to do. So our perseverance, just like our justification, is not of ourselves. It's only of Christ. How, is, how are we saved to begin with? Charles Spurgeon, you know, his testimony is he went to a a service during bad weather one day. There weren't very many people there, but him and the preacher wasn't even there because of the weather. So some random guy from the church stood up and preached a text. And his conclusion was, well, not really his conclusion, his message was simply, look to Jesus. That's not too hard. Anyone can look. It doesn't say do this or do that. It just says look. And Spurgeon looks back on that and says, you know, what a glorious message, really, that the gospel is. Just as in the wilderness years ago, when Israel was was stricken with this this disease and God puts a serpent on a pole and says, whoever looks to that will be saved. And then John says, in the same way now, Christ has been lifted up. And by looking to him, we're saved. And if that's the case, that we're saved by looking to him, then most certainly we persevere through looking to him as well. Well, we're out of time, so we'll close in prayer and be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the greatness of the salvation you've granted to us. 
Lord, we thank you for putting us in this era of history that we have these things revealed. That things that were hidden for generations, you have now made known to us. I pray that you would continue to give our hearts joy in these things. You would remind us daily of our hope that we have in you, a living hope whose name is Jesus. We pray now that you would bless our service this morning, that your name would be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.